that you would bless us now as we look into the testimony and witness of your word. Instruct us, Father, as a father teaches his children. Have pity on us, and Lord, strengthen us through that which you have given us in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning, um, beginning with uh, Acts chapter 26, and then we're going to get back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, it's hard sometimes to get our minds wrapped around ancient affairs. Uh, we do have some advantage today because computer-generated images have been able to reproduce settings and events like never before in human history, uh, creating a sense of actually being there uh, when historical events uh, unfold. Structures and scenes uh, long obliterated by time uh, can often be recreated today with startling detail. And these tricks can be used, of course, both positively and negatively. Because while it makes it possible to reconstruct scenes in very realistic detail, it also makes it possible to construct other scenes that never actually happened in great detail and thereby rewriting history. But let's take our basic familiarity this morning with first century scenes from Roman places. Kind of get your mind thinking about that. Uh, the idea of what the world looked like under the Roman Empire and uh, those settings. And we want to look for a moment Acts chapter 24. I think I said Acts 26, but I meant Acts 24. This is just after Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem at the behest of the Jews. And in response to his own request that he be dealt with as a free Roman citizen. The Roman ruler in Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias, uh, determines to send Paul to the next man up in the governmental chain of authority. And he sends him under guard to Felix, the governor, whose name means happy. And he's the governor of the area, and he's residing in the seaside resort of Caesarea at the time. Now, we can't take time to lay out the city of Caesarea for you today, but some of you will remember uh, I gave kind of a careful explanation of what that place was like back when we were studying the life of Paul on Sunday evenings last year. But let me just say for now that this was a thoroughly Romanized city on the seacoast of the Mediterranean, northwest of Jerusalem. And for one of a better description, it was considered a playground resort. And it was considered that way since the days of its really building or resurrection at the hands of Herod the Great. Paul is transferred and he's held here while the high priest and the other accusers of Paul arrive from Jerusalem uh, at Caesarea. For, these, for the high priest and these other accusers, this is a detestable trip. And it's detestable because of the Romanization of Caesarea. It's a place that made it an abomination to the self-righteous Jew. But their hatred of Christ and the gospel is such that they 
forced themselves to go up to Caesarea and to approach Felix. (coughs) And Felix, you have to understand, is a man that they loathe. They have no real regard for the man. They actually despise Felix. And there's so much that could be said here, but I have to resist the temptation and just keep going toward my point. But I will say this. When these men first address Felix, they're lying through their teeth, as we would say. And you read about their initial address in Acts chapter 24, beginning with verses 1 through 3. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Now, Every word of that greeting is a lie. They don't think Felix is excellent. They don't think his reforms are good for the nation. And they're not received with gratitude, but they're received with resistance at every hand. The real story is that Felix is despised and he's hated by the Jews and with all good cause. His so-called reforms aren't reforming the region, but they're plunging it into ruin. He is cruel. He's ruthless, he's violent, and he is immoral. Uh, He is joined together with raiders who are robbing the people and and turning the whole district into uh, a terror. Again, I, I can't take time to set forth this man's whole story in detail, uh, but it would make any streaming series popular today seem kind of tame if you had somebody who was streaming the the life of Felix, the governor. Felix was at the start of this story, of his story, a Roman slave. And he rose primarily because of the influence of his brother to almost kingly power. And the authority at the hands of the emperors Claudius and Nero, uh, who helped him along the way, he was pushed forward and enters this position of governor and he seized every opportunity granted him for, for his own advantage and his own enrichment, becoming really a kind of criminal, arch-criminal. It would be safe to say that history clearly bears testimony to the facts, fact that Felix broke every commandment with regularity and impunity. He had two queens named Drusilla. He also had a third queen, but she remains nameless to history. The second queen, Drusilla, is the one who is sitting next to him when Paul is brought before Felix to testify. This Drusilla is by his side because Felix hired a magician named Simon to work his magic so that he could steal her away from her husband. 
And he gets this magician to uh, do incantations and potions and also to work political uh, intrigue in order to steal Drusilla away from her husband. This Drusilla is the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. And she's married to another king, the king of Emesa. Not so much because of marriage. Uh, rather, I should say, not so much because of magic. But because of politics and lust. The beautiful Drusilla violates the law, the law of Moses and the law of the land, leaves her husband, and she marries Felix. And there are no consequences for either of them in this action because Felix has all these powerful allies in Rome, including the emperor himself. This woman who proudly takes her place beside Felix, who has sought her out of what was uncontrollable lust for her, will die with her son while vacationing in Italy because of an eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Not the famous eruption, but one that happened earlier. Now, let me just sum all this up, and there's a reason why we're doing this. Let me just sum this up by quoting an historical account of Felix's reign. Tacitus, in his history, declares that during his governorship in Judea, he indulged in all kinds of cruelty and lust, exercising regal power with the disposition of a slave. And in his annals, Tacitus says he represents Felix as considering himself licensed to commit any crime, relying on the influence which he possessed at court. So here's this governor, Felix, before whom Paul's going to meet, and he considers himself licensed to commit any crime he wants. Now, why am I giving you all this sordid background to Felix? Well, it's for this reason. It helps you understand what's going on when you read Paul's words to Felix. So now we're in Acts chapter 24, and we're looking at verses 24 through 26. And Paul is speaking to this governor. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. The whole story comes alive, doesn't it? With just a little bit of background. Right down to the hope of a bribe from Paul. Why is he hoping for a bribe? Because he's a criminal. He's not a ruler. He's not somebody judging with equity and honesty. He's a criminal. And as a criminal, he's thinking, what can I get out of this? What can I gain for myself? And so he's hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe. And he, he has him come and talk to him often, not because he wants to hear what Paul has to say, 
but because he's hoping that somewhere along the line, when Paul's doing all this talking, he'll say, and can I give you a bribe? That's what he's hoping for. But I want you to look very carefully at what Luke says Paul spoke to him about and his reaction. Paul spoke to Felix about faith in Christ Jesus, and then he reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And all of that alarmed Felix. That is, made him so afraid, Luke tells us, that he actually trembled on his judgment seat as he was sitting there and Paul was talking about faith in Jesus Christ and righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. But just stop for a moment and think about Paul reasoning with this man, Felix, about the subject of self-control. Let's think about it for a minute. Reasoning with this man about the subject of self-control. Right there on the governor's right hand is a testimony to his utter lack of self-control. Drusilla the queen sitting there. A woman he's stolen from another man. And he's used whatever means he could possibly come up with in order to make that happen. Because he's, he has no self-control. He saw her. He lusted after her. He wanted her. He had to have her. And he did whatever he could to make it happen. But she's only one example. Almost everything about the unrighteous behavior of this man has been made worse by his total inability to control himself in any reasonable way. And it will be his ruin in the end in more than one way. But here's Paul. And of all the subjects he could take up, he takes up with this governor this issue of self-control. Now, when we hear the term self-control, we all have some idea of what that means and therefore what Felix lacked. But sometimes what we think something refers to and, and the dullness of what is intended is worth taking note of in circumstances like this. So that brings us to 2 Peter chapter 1. And that's where we want to turn now. And we'll see why all of this should be of special interest to you. That is what was going on in Felix's hearing room. Here Peter is addressing Christians. Those who have obtained like precious faith, he says. He refers there to how the divine power of the Lord has granted to those who believe all things that pertain to life and to godliness, and that through the Lord Jesus Christ, very great and precious promises have been granted to those believers. And then he writes to you who believe, to you who have those precious promises, to you to whom have been given by divine power all things that pertain to life and godliness. He writes to you, and he says this in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, 
and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, we've been looking at this whole picture as it relates to our place in the present state of our culture. And the duty that we have to to be a witness for Christ in this world. And I feel I have to stress once more that the pathway, beloved, out of our present decline is not ultimately through political activism or looking to men and women in the arm of flesh to deliver us in any way but to dedicate ourselves as believers primarily to the work of the kingdom of Christ. Going out into the world and being ready to give to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Going out into the world and demonstrating our love for God and for others, not in word and tongue, but in, word, but in deeds and in truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't preclude our need to be responsible and active citizens in the context of our nation. That's part of our duty as Christians. But it does place the priority on our duties, of our duties, on the fact that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. (coughs) And the best thing we can do for our country is to serve first and foremost our Savior and our King. No less of a patriot than General George Washington said in his general orders from Valley Forge, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To distinguish character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add to the more distinguished character of Christian. And it is this Christian character that Peter is describing, and he's calling on believers in the name of the Lord to be developing this Christian character for a twofold purpose. First, that we might be engaged in making our own calling and election sure. As we build this character, it gives us evidence of our faith and our trust in Christ, and it strengthens that faith and trust in Christ. And secondly, that we might be a living testimony to others, especially those who are lost in sin and are stumbling around the darkness of this world, awash in floundering and contradictions and deceits and corruptions. So in looking at Peter's instruction, we have seen that we ought to be energetically and deliberately adding to our faith virtue, that is the pursuit of a godly life, to our virtue knowledge, because his divine powers grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. And that aspect Mr. Brillhart opened up for you last week. And now we come to the task of adding diligently to our faith, virtue, and knowledge the thing we call self-control. We're going to consider three things in regard to this this morning. 
what it is, how we achieve it, and why it's so vital as a part of our testimony right now. So what is it? There's a sense, of course, in which self-control speaks for itself. In our reliable English translations of the New Testament, it's translated self-control and or temperance. But if you begin to dig into the word as the New Testament writers used it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it helps us to kind of get a fuller picture. And there are three places to look for that. I want to note that there's just three times in which in the New Testament this idea of self-control appears in this sense. The first is in Acts 24, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul reasons with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Secondly, Paul uses this term in Galatians 5.23 when he's referring to the gifts of the Spirit. You remember Galatians 5 verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Then verse 23 says, Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And then Peter uses it here in 2 Peter chapter 1. The first two uses give us an interesting and I think instructive contrast. You have Felix acting out every impulse of his sinful heart and flesh, utterly lacking all self-control. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8 and verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's what he Felix is. He's a slave to sin. And the Holy Spirit, in contrast, gives to the believer the gift of self-control. So we see Felix without any. Then we hear of the Holy Spirit giving the gift of self-control to those who believe. So that that believer is no longer a slave of every impulse or emotion, but able to resist those things in the process of sanctification. Paul says in Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So in that way, we get a practical idea of the matter. We have Felix, who doesn't have any self-control, that's manifested in the whole story of his life. And then we have the the call for Paul, from Paul, for the work of the Holy Spirit in us, which brings self-control to bear in our lives. But we probe a bit further, and we find that this is, in Greek, a compound word. And some of you children are learning what that is right now and how we use compound words every day. We have what we call closed compound words, like fireman, or superman, or notebook. And those are common in our language, and they're common in Greek, too. And here in self-control, you have the words in and holding. But the word holding includes the idea of doing so mightily with all your strength, 
with power getting a grip on something. The word holding is used in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 by the Apostle Paul. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And there you get that idea of mightiness. And you can see there, it's translated simply might in that context. So this compound word is do this in might. Get control of yourself mightily. That's what Peter's calling for here, beloved. Using your faith, fortified with virtue and knowledge, to get a mighty grip on yourself. And I don't know about you. Actually, I do. But... Anyway, I know that if I don't get a mighty grip on myself with the Lord's help, I drift. And that drifting is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7 that Mr. Brillhart read to us earlier this morning. So it's getting a mighty hold on oneself. And we get that mighty hold on ourselves because we need it. And we'll come to that again in a moment. But there's one thing we want to be careful about when we're talking about self-control. Because it actually has two sides. There's the side that we've been talking about and illustrating with Felix. But we have to remember also that our nature is such that it really needs self-control. I need to not... At the self-control in my arm out there. It, it really needs self-control all around, all around, on all, on all sides. The Bible tells us that it's good to be zealous in good things, but it's dangerous to be without self-control in our zeal for a good thing. You and I are quite capable of doing a good thing in a bad way because we lack self-control. Thomas Adams says, devotion without discretion is like a hasty servant that runs away without his errand. Profession of faith without temperance is turned into hypocrisy or such a preposterous zeal that's like fire, not on the hearth to warm, but in the top of the chimney to set the house on the fire. We just look at it in one context. One of the other graces we're supposed to develop here in, in, in First Peter, or rather Second Peter chapter one, is brotherly kindness. Now, if I don't get a grip on my natural self by the spirit and the word, I can never really show brotherly kindness. Or if I do, I might be so timid and partial in trying to show it that I will be doting and complacent and overindulgent to the compromise of the truth because I don't have self-control. On the one hand, I might not have any self-control and go around condemning everybody. And on the other hand, I might not have self-control and because I have no self-control, I don't really require anything of anybody. And both of those situations require me to have a mighty hold on myself. In short, self-control or firm grip is needed to keep me from becoming too critical or not critical enough. But it works both ways. 
So how do we achieve then this self-control? Getting a little better understanding of what it is, how do we achieve it? Well, first of all, we have to recognize the need, beloved. We never seek out what we don't recognize as lost or needed. We'll never seek to add self-control as a natural addendum to our faith and our virtue and our knowledge unless we first acknowledge that it's not common to us by nature and that it's needed as a part of our fully shaped Christian character. One new husband told his bride, he said, Dear, I want you to know I only have one weakness. I sometimes get angry without a good reason. And the new wife looked up at him lovingly and said, Not to fret at all over that weakness, because she would keep him from it by supplying him with all the reasons he needed. (laughs) She was going to take care of that problem of his by giving him all the reason he needed. We want to be careful to recognize the difference between personality and the God-given gift of temperance or self-control. Let's just take this example that this man was referring to, this husband, anger. Some people are quick to anger by nature. I'm sure you all know people like that. They, they just get angry quickly. They flare up and uh, they do it with little provocation. And the one good thing about people who have that problem is they tend to calm down just as quickly. They flare up and they have a spell and then they're, they're over it. And then you have those who simmer. They don't fly off the handle, as we put it, but they do a slow burn. They let things build and build and they come slowly to the boiling point. So they take this thing that offends them and this thing they don't like, and that thing they don't like, and they bury it all and just pretend like nothing's going on, but inside it's seething seething and simmering. Now the person who simmers often looks at the one who pops off and is tempted to think, that person needs to exercise self-control like me. They need to be a little bit like me and and not angry so easily, quite so easily. And do you see what's wrong with that analysis on the part of that simmering person? The person who pops off is tested at the moment he or she is ready to pop. That's when they need to exercise self-control. But the person who is a slow boiler isn't by nature exercising a Christian characteristic of self-control, when she or he adds something else to the pot, doesn't get angry at the moment, but buries it instead. No, the self-control comes into play when he or she is burying things by nature because he or she wants to avoid confrontation or doesn't want to cause trouble or doesn't want to be embarrassed, or doesn't want to make an issue out of it, whatever excuse is used, that's where self-control begins. Wait a minute. Is this the wisest and best thing for me to do? I'm upset. Maybe I need to deal with this right now. Not pop off in anger, 
but deal with the issue right now. But they're not exercising self-control. They're letting themselves be controlled by their self, and so they're burying these things. And then, of course, the great moment for that person of testing is when his or her issues come to the pressure point where they're ready to explode. For the quick to anger, that comes on fast. But for the other, that same moment comes on slowly. But both need to be exercising self-control. It's not self-control to just keep putting that back and putting it in the back and putting it aside and then just waiting for the moment when you can't stand it anymore and then breaking out in anger. And when you do that, you know what happens to the person who does that. If you've witnessed it or if you do it, you know what happens. All that stuff you have been burying and and putting in the back, you drag it all out when it finally boils to the surface, don't you? It all comes out. Here it is. Oh, well, you remember back a month ago when you did this or you did that and it made me so angry? But I buried it away and I hid it. So I'm exercising self-control. But now it's all coming out and I'm in a rage because of the situation. That's not self-control, beloved. That's just acting on the basis of your personality, your nature. This self-control is getting a mighty hold on yourself and then determining what you're doing on the basis of what God's word teaches and says and how you ought to respond to things. Proverbs refers to both of these characters when we read in Proverbs chapter 22. Make no friendship with the man given to anger, to outbursts, nor go with a wrathful man, one who lets it simmer until he can't stand it anymore, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. It's not when self-control is not needed that it's being exercised, but when it's desperately required. We only have time to cite one example, but hopefully you can see how it applies in general over a wide range of issues. It's because we, by our sinful nature, tend to be controlled by self rather than to exercise self-control. And it's because we can be so easily deceived about those things that we need to be honest with ourselves and call on the Holy Spirit to bless us with the heavenly spirit of self-control. To be looking not for the natural ability, but the heavenly ability, the spiritual ability that comes to us through Christ, through the Spirit, and through the Word. The second thing to find this, we have to be able to admit our weakness. This may sound similar to what we just said, but it it takes the issue really a step further. Not only do we need this gift of the Spirit, but the truth is, getting this self-control over ourselves is a very difficult thing. Remember, this is a call to add to your Christian character a mighty hold on yourself. Are you ready and are you willing to confess and admit that you cannot, by yourself, accomplish 
what is called for here. This isn't Peter saying to you, look, buck up. Just be a better person than you are already. It's Peter saying to you, you need to diligently work to see this spiritual gift added to you. It's a thing that you don't have the strength for in yourself, but it's something that does come from the strength of the Lord working in you. In Isaiah 66, 2, the last half of the verse, it says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It takes real humility to admit before the Lord and your brethren that you lack self-control by nature. And don't misunderstand. We're not talking about the simple exercise of your will that you might even by nature or pride choose to practice. That's not what we're talking about here. Now, this is on the grander scale of the battles between your will and God's revealed will, between the rising of temptation and whispered wooing of the enemy and your obedience to the word of God and the secret places of your heart in the context of your conscience in the way you walk before God and others. You and I both know that especially in the deepest battles, it takes a mighty hold to keep us under control. To not just let go. To not act in selfishness. To not give in to self-will. And the wise believer understands what Jesus meant when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the third aspect to achieving it is to actually seek the victory. To seek the victory. If you wish to add self-control to your faith and your virtue and your knowledge, then be content with nothing less than victory. In those areas where yourself is contending with God and his word. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We bring our lives and our hearts into conformity to God's word on the basis of our faith through the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ working in us by his spirit and his word. Let me close with this this morning. Why is this important right now? Well, first of all, beloved, it serves as, an, as a, a, a notable contrast just think of Paul and Felix. And look at those two men as they're standing there in that room. Here is Felix who is giving way to every impulse, every emotion, every passion he has. This just living his life uncontrollably. Completely void of any self-control. And then there's Paul. And look at the self-control of that man. He was able to say in all sincerity, I have learned 
to be content in whatever state I am in. You understand, don't you, that that state of of contentment in whatever the circumstances were was a result of self-control, a mighty hold on himself. We don't get the picture of the Apostle Paul before he's Christ as a man who's not self-willed or who isn't proud. We get the picture of a man who's very proud. And yet when Christ comes into his life, his whole character changes. And he becomes a man under self-control. And he talks about being willing to, to even restrain himself and things that he knows he has liberty to do. Constraining himself so that he might win men and women to Christ. That is self-control. Here is Paul standing before Felix. And there's all kinds of things Paul could have thought of to say. But he's under constraint. He's under the mighty hold of self-control by the Spirit of God. Not thinking about, how am I, Paul, being so badly and poorly treated here? But thinking, what of this man's soul? What of this man's heart? What of this man's life? I'm standing before a man who, through his utter lack of self-control, shows that he is bound for hell. And I have the message of the gospel. And what does he reason with Felix about? The law of the Romans? The law of the Jews? No, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteousness, self-control, his own guiltiness with sin, and the coming judgment. That's self-control epitomized in that moment. And when you, while all these things are going on, have the hearts and lives of men and women in regard to their eternal welfare in mind, and you can see behind all the noise and mess and see that, and you control yourself in the midst of all that and bear that testimony for Christ, you provide a notable contrast to the world secondly uncontrolled passion and lust lead to a dead end and usually wreckage it just does and so it's important right now that we not be carried off by our self-will but by the lord and his word under the self-control of the spirit felix will be charged with crimes against humanity He manages to escape all earthly conviction, but it's believed that he eventually dies of TB, tuberculosis, without repentance, and falls into the hands of the judge of all men's hearts. And lastly, it gives witness because it's so powerful in its witness to the even greater grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In chapter 3 he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. How is it that those who slander your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame? By your exercise of self-control in the face of that slander. And then lastly, in chapter 4, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, or being like Felix. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Beloved, we want our hands clean in that day. We don't want to be an example of those who are ruled by self but claiming to be Christ. We want to be an example of those who are ruled by Christ and have a grip on ourselves so that we can be a witness and a testimony to this dying world. Add to your faith, virtue. To your virtue, knowledge. To your knowledge, self-control. Let's pray. Father, bless uh, these thoughts to our hearts this morning. Lord, we pray for that mighty hold on ourselves that is born of your spirit. Lord, uh, hearts before you this morning can confess that uh, we don't have this in ourselves but Lord we can have it by your spirit and so Lord we pray that you would not keep this matter that pertains to life and godliness from us but because we're yours through the Lord Jesus Christ that Lord you would endow us with a spirit of self-control that can serve as a witness to the whole world no father if there's anyone who's here or who's watching who has seen the lack of self-control in any one of us and is using that as an excuse to turn away from the gospel. We pray, first of all, Lord, you would forgive us for that. And we pray, Lord, that they would forgive us for it and not look for the truth in our weakness, but, Lord, in your strength and in your word. And, Lord, we pray that they would turn to you for that mercy and that blessing which takes weak men and sinners like us and makes them new creatures in Christ Jesus. Grant it, Lord, by your grace, and bless us as your people today, where we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.